Welcome to a monstrous science fiction double feature. This week, we talk to Vivian Shaw about Greta Helsing, Doctor to London's Monsters in Strange Practice. Then we talk to Dr. Tom Oates, Consultant General Physician at the Royal London Hospital, about what it's like treating the more human elements of the London population. Practice is author Vivian Shaw's first published novel. Well, I should say it's the first in her series of novels. This one is set in contemporary London, but with all the monsters from Gothic horror populating its pages. Here's Vivian to introduce us to this monstrous version of London. Well, the uh, the quickest and easiest way to explain the book is uh, Dr. Greta Helsing sees dead people from 924 and by appointment in her Harley Street consulting rooms. She is a perfectly normal human being, and she lives in a world in which there are monsters. All of the monsters in fiction actually exist. It's just that most people don't really know about them. So she treats monsters, and she has to keep her private life and her public life very, very separate, because if anyone knows about her patients, they could be in danger. So she has... This is just sort of normal for her. This is how she's always been. She inherited the practice from her father. And then something starts happening in London, and it turns out that there are people attacking both the living and the dead. And so Greta and her patients and her friends have to figure out what's happening and try and stop it before too late. Were you a fan of kind of monsters and all that, all those kinds of genre of books beforehand? Or, or what was the inspiration for this kind of approach for monsters? Well, yes, first off, yes, I absolutely always have been a fan of you know, gothic literature, that kind of stuff. But the original book was written way back in 2004 as a National Novel Writing Month novel. And that it evolved quite a lot between then and the one you have in your hands. But the idea was originally, let's see how many characters from classic vampire lit can I get into one book. And I got most of them. The one that eventually got published doesn't have several of the characters in it, but that was the idea is let's see how I can try and take monsters from classic literature and put them together into a story that actually works and makes sense and has some kind of, that is some way relevant to the modern world. I kind of thought of the heritage of the Van Helsings as Greta Helsing is and kind of the Harley Street Clinic as for me, like a mental shortcut to accepting that kind of universe. Uh, was that your intention or did you just like the Van Helsings? Well, actually, it's partially one and partially the other. Uh, of course, she had to have a Harley Street consulting room because otherwise nobody would really take her seriously. And also, I wanted to I wanted to involve the Helsings, the Van Helsing character and the history of that name as a trope but i also wanted to kind of turn it sideways so instead of being a vampire hunter she's a vampire doctor and i found all the monsters very well i'm i imagine this is the way you wrote them but very sympathetic uh and i really really liked ruthven as well uh are you going to have monsters in your wider universe that won't be as sympathetic or endearing well absolutely yes the second book which is currently being edited is set in France, and um, the monsters involved in it are partially the kind that you've come to know through the first book, and partially they're the other kind. So Greta finds herself faced with some extremely difficult uh, situations in the grip of a group of vampires who are not at all nice or avuncular or kind. 
These are the kind of vampires who wear leather trousers and call themselves the kindred. So no Volvos. No, not so much. <laughs> cool. Uh, and one of the things that I, I think just got me into the book as well was how Londony it was, because I live in London, uh, including potentially having Greta as my ex-neighbour as I've now moved from Crouch End. Um, but why choose London as the city uh, that has your book? Well, first off, I'm so glad to hear that because I have been to London approximately five or six times in my entire life. <laughs> so it really pleases me that I managed to nail it. I've always wanted to live there. I'm English originally. Uh, we moved to America when I was seven, and I've been here ever since. But I still consider England my home in many ways. And so I really wanted to have my characters be able to spend time in these really interesting places. The history of London is so fantastically long and storied and complicated. There's layers of it. And I, I wanted that to be almost a character in the story as well. The history of the world in which they live and the way that some of these people have been around for hundreds of years and some of them have been around for five, six years. London is still their home. Uh, and as well, you had lots of underground London, which I really liked as well. So you have the shelters, the sewers, the arc rectifier... Like you mentioned, you wanted to be a character. How much research did you have to do for that? A lot. Unfortunately, I couldn't <laughs> actually go to London and walk around and see all of the things. So what I did is I used Google Street View. This is an it's so important as a tool that's available now to writers, because you can actually figure out where you want your characters to walk from and to, and go on Google Street View and see exactly what they would see. So you can describe it correctly. So you can also decide that I'm not actually going to have this car drive the wrong way down a one-way street because it looks like it should work on a map. If you look on Street View, I'm like, oh, okay, that's not going to work. Let me rethink that. But yeah, the, the research was, it began originally as me being really interested in the underground part of London, which I still am. I would love to go on some of the tours that they have of Kensal Green Cemetery, that kind of thing. But I had to do a lot of reading, and most of all, I had to do a lot of Googling and not stopping when I thought I got the answer. I had to push a little bit farther and make sure that I hadn't misunderstood the answer so that I could actually build on that and go from there. You use the environment uh, and kind of, you know, the underground and things like that uh, as a way to be the kind of place where your, your monsters or your real monsters in the books, the murderous monks, what drew you to use that and use the monks as the kind of baddies in your book? That is a very good question. And unfortunately, the answer is incredibly complicated, but I think I can simplify it to a series of um, coincidences when I was first reviewing the things that might turn into this book. In fact, the thing that gave me the idea in the first place was actually a picture of the Bellsize Park deep level shelters, um, Mercury Arc Rectifier. Because on subred.org, they went down there and they did a whole exploration. They posted all those pictures. So I thought, okay, I have to have that. So what can that do? How can I turn that thing into a villain or a thing that has like more talismanic quality than just a piece of electrical equipment? So I thought, what about if I had people who are hunting vampires, i.e., the standard kind of religious, like, bell, book, and candle type of exorcists. And what if I turned that around and made those the aggressors and made those the villains? So I was trying to think of who I could have living underground, basically worshipping this incredibly weird glowing blue orb of electricity. And I thought, 
Okay, it's gotta be Mad Monks, because it's gothic. It has got to be Mad Monks, that's where I'm going with this. Although you do sympathise with the one poor Mad Monk at the end uh, as well. Um, So I understand this is your first published novel. Uh, What was the hardest part about writing the novel? Well, the hardest part about writing this one was trying to pull it together, because originally, like I said, it had been written a long, long time ago, and it had undergone several changes in the decades since it was first put to paper. But the hardest part was trying to take the old stuff that had that was still original to the first version of the novel and try to mix that with the new parts that I had just written. So it's kind of, in many ways, it's a Franken book. It's There are old parts and new parts, and they're all kind of tied together. And getting the tone consistent across the entire piece of work, that was the most difficult part for me. People have to actually pick up the book to look at it, but the the illustrations in the cover and also the several, there's a couple of illustrations on the inside. I think the artist was Will Stoll? Yes, that's right. Did you collaborate with him on this or was this just, you know, his own creation? Because they're fabulous. I only saw this when it was almost at the final stages. So I was surprised and I... What I love most about it is the way that he kind of blends the Victorian and the modern in those illustrations. Like, if you look at the cover, what kills me is that it has not only your standard London landmarks, it has the eye, it has the shard, it has a tower, but it also has things, little details like the Thames flood barrier is in there. And he's mixing that, that incredible, like, modern attention to detail with this very Victorian ethos, which I think really works not only like as a piece of art, but it really represents the novel too. Uh, and you mentioned you have uh, another one coming and set in Paris. Well, you actually have another two coming. Can you tell us uh, anything about those two? Yes, the second one is, it's set in Paris, like I said, and it's Greta is there because she has to give a paper at a scientific conference with almost no notice because one of her friends was taken ill and she had to take his place. And the adventures that she goes on in Paris will introduce you to not only the bad vampires, but also to a very large and amiable werewolf, a completely ineffective demon, and a couple of remedial psychopomps. I love these characters. I am so glad that I get to put them in here. They're named Crepusculus and Brightside, and they are basically Ghostbusters, but they're I guess they're eternal beings who don't actually, they're not human, they've never been human. What they do is they help move ghosts on. So if someone is dead and they're stuck and they're not quite able to get to where they should be in the next world, these guys show up and they just give them a little bit of a nudge. So I'm really pleased about being able to bring in those guys to the second book. And the third one, which I've just begun working on, and I'm really excited about. This is set also in France, but in the south of France at a spa outside of Marseille, and it's a mummy spa and resort, only for mummies. So you get to see, Greta has to do a uh, several months as the interim medical director of this place, and so you get to see her treating mummies for all kinds of stuff. And it's I'm so looking forward to this, because the amount of research I'm going to have to do for it is terrifying and awful and wonderful at the same time. I'm going to have to read so many things. <laughs> And is a similar reason to go to Paris the same reason for London, that it's like kind of this lovely historically layered city? Yeah, that and the fact that I did go to Paris once when I was 18. I spent about two weeks there on a study abroad trip, and it was just so incredibly beautiful that I wanted to write about Paris. I wanted to have my characters get to see and engage in all the cool things that I did when I was there. Also, because I totally brought in The Phantom of the Opera, because part of the book is set in and under 
the Paris Opera House. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. You can see the lake on Google Street View. Oh, really? This is actually a thing. You could actually, they have done a thing where they took the little Google Street View bot all the way through the Paris Opera House. So you can see not only the auditorium, but like the backstage areas. You can see like one of the practice rooms that's above the stage and you can see the lake underneath of it. I just, I love that that's a thing. It makes me so happy. Oh yeah. So you mentioned that this originally came about from uh, NaNoWriMo. What are, do you have any advice for someone who have just, who's just done NaNoWriMo is going to attempt it this November uh, to turn that into like a published novel? Well, the first thing is don't stop. This is the first thing that was really told to me when I was trying to write books when I was about 11. And it's the most important thing that actually stuck with me is don't stop. Even if you don't think it's any good, even if you're just writing for the word count, even if you're just like, I can't do this, do it anyway. And it doesn't matter if people don't immediately like it. If you keep working on it, if you don't give up on the project, if you just keep working on it and keep showing it to people, and if you actually believe in it enough to want to show people and say, hey, look, I did this thing, look at it, someone is going to listen and someone is going to read it and someone is going to help you get to the next level. And then you can decide whether you want to push it harder and try and go for publication or if this is not something you want to do as a profession. But don't stop. Good advice. Uh, so finally, uh, a question I like to ask everyone, what are the books you're reading now? What do you like to read? What would you recommend to other people? Well, because I'm for once, well, I'm, I have just begun writing a book again, but for a couple of weeks, I was not writing a book, which meant I could actually read books, which is exciting. <laughs> um, also, I, I just always I go back to Stephen King. He is he's brain candy. I love King. He's brilliant, and he's got voice better than almost any other writer I can think of. But going back to reading his stuff again, is it's like coming home. And it's just so encouraging to be like, yeah, I remember this, and it's still as good as it was when I last read it. But if you want recommendations for interesting gothic stuff, read Mervyn Peake. The Gorman Gas Trilogy is one of the most important influences on my work. Mervyn Peake is amazing. He is, if Stephen King is brain candy, Mervyn Peake is like brain really dark chocolate. You can't have very much of it, but it's intense and gorgeous. While we may not have monsters that need medical attention, London still has many others who need some help. Luckily, we have the brilliant National Health Service and lovely doctors and nurses who look after us when we fall down or have serious health conditions. And because they are lovely, one agreed to talk to me about what life is like for a doctor in London. Tom would like to stress that the following views are his opinion and not that of his employers. So I am a um, consultant general physician and nephrologist, um, nephrologist being a kidney doctor at the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel in London. So what that means is um, I have a kind of specialty, which is nephrology, which is kidneys, but I also do what is called general medicine, which means that anybody who walks through the front door of the Royal London, which is normally through the accident and emergency department, um, who is felt to, to need specialist assessment by a physician as opposed to assessment by an emergency, an accident, an emergency doctor 
comes to us and we see them. So it means that we see the whole range of, of medical problems um, in the patients that we look after in East London. So it's a, it's a very, a very broad, uh, broad church of medical problems. Um, and, and we never quite know what we're going to do, be doing for on a day to day basis, which is why we all love the job, I think. So my next question was, what's a typical day like? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have typical days? Yeah, so typical day is, is difficult. So w- what it means is, obviously, hospitals never close. So there are patients coming in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, who the emergency department think then need to be seen by the medical doctors, which is us. Um, so there are lots of junior doctors beavering away 24 hours a day, then seeing those patients, coming to some thoughts about what's wrong with the patients, how they might best be managed how we might be able to manage them outside of hospital or, or how we might be able to look after them in the hospital. And then so we consultant physicians will often start about eight o'clock in the morning seeing the patients who the junior doctors have seen overnight. And most of the time, because junior doctors are also excellent these days, most of the time it's just a question of rubber stamping what they've decided. Um, so we do that all morning probably. And then we'd spend the afternoon just checking that the patients who are most unwell or the patients who need very specialist care are then moved forward, as it were, in in their care. Um, And then in the evening, we all start again doing seeing the patients. So during the day, the patients who have been admitted by the junior doctors, we as a consultants would then start seeing those patients um, and making the making the plans for them. Um, so that the day has a very predictable structure, perhaps, but what fills that structure is certainly very unpredictable. How do you get interested in nephrology? Like, I, I imagine all organs are, you know, equally fascinating. But what drew you to that specifically? So the thing about your kidneys or thing about kidneys is, well, a number of things is one kidney, your kidneys are affected by either very um, common diseases like diabetes, so the commonest cause of of kidney failure in the UK or the commonest causes are diabetes and high blood pressure, which are obviously very common diseases, Um, but also some diseases that are quite interesting and tricky to treat. I'm always slightly wary about referring to people's illnesses as interesting, but so things like lupus, um, other diseases, which are called vasculitis. These are things that affect kidneys. And those are very interesting illnesses, which, as I say, are a real challenge to treat in patients. So that, you know, is a is a very exciting thing to, to be, exciting challenge to be faced with in, in how you can treat treat patients with these nasty illnesses um, to, to your best ability so they can get better. The other thing is if somebody's kidneys fail for whatever reason, and they need to have dialysis treatment or they get a kidney transplant, then to a certain extent, they are in a relationship with their nephrologist for the rest of their life. And that is an incredible privilege for a doctor to to, to look after someone through the course of a very long illness, through the course of they may spend a period being treated for their illness, then their kidneys might fail and they might be on dialysis, then they might get a transplant then that transplant might fail, then they might go back on dialysis. And that can be 20 years. And so by the end of that, you know, you know these patients inside out, they know you, 
whenever they have a new problem, you can just look them in the eye and say, all right, John, what's wrong now? That kind of continuity of care is, is a privilege to be a doctor and deliver, but it's also a great kind of comfort to the patient. Um, and, and nephrology, I think we are very lucky in that we have that probably more than any other medical specialty. And in the end, it was probably that that drove me into that specialty. I imagine it, you can have quite like emotional uh, aspects to your job as well. That <laughs> sounds like that might be one of them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of doctors are very wary about saying that it's very upsetting being a doctor <laughs> because, you know, you think you can't be able to show be able to show emotion because that's weak or whatever. But actually, it is very upsetting being a doctor quite often. You know, one of the great challenges, probably the greatest challenge of being a doctor is not learning X, Y, Z. It is learning how to cope with the fact that a lot of the things we deal with on a daily basis are very difficult to deal with emotionally. So I imagine when you're in medical school and you're learning about, you know, specialty, but also general practice, how much do you then learn more after starting to practice medicine? So it's quite in the UK, it's quite a lengthy postgraduate training that you have. So when you're a doctor, you still are allegedly training for quite a long time. So um, you do a first year as it was when I did it. And now it's two years where you just do a whole range of different things. So medicine, surgery, psychiatry, that kind of thing. And then after that introductory period, you would then do two to three years in the broad area, so two to three years in medicine, two to three years in surgery, whatever. And then you choose your specific area of that. So for me, I chose nephrology and then I would I did a further eight years training as a nephrologist and at the same time you you kind of train in in general medicine, which sounds like a bit of a kind of misnomer, but but you do. And then you finally make it to the to the heights of consultant after about 14 years as a so-called junior doctor, which when you're a junior doctor and you're almost 40, it begins to grate a bit on your <laughs> But there you go. <laughs> so in a city like London, especially East London, which is actually very varied, very diverse, um, can you become blind to things that aren't typical city problems like... Uh, I, the only example I could think of is if like kind of industrial accidents that happen on farms and stuff. But are there differences or is just everyone generally have the same kind of problems? So I've only ever worked in London, so I don't have a much of an idea about um, sort of rural practices and stuff. But in big cities, um, you see a lot, a lot of patients have very similar illnesses, but equally within that, a lot of illnesses patients have are, are very specific to their communities. So, uh, and in, in London, that's mostly ethnic. So in East London, there's a large Bangladeshi community. Virtually all the patients from that community who get admitted to hospital will have diabetes. And a lot of their admissions as a result will be um, from complications of diabetes. That's similar. I used to work in West London, um, and, and that was similar um, in there's a large Sikh population in, in West London. Also in West London, there's a, um, a, a large West Indian population, some sort of all the way back to the original Windrush era. And they have a lot of problems from hypertension and things. So you do get a real feeling for um, what kind of medical problems there are in your catchment. Most hospitals which serve 
parts of London are very proud of how they they kind of interact with the local communities and try and tailor their services towards the health needs of the local communities. Oh, wow. That's, I, didn't, I had no idea. <laughs> so what would make, uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in the terrible uh, house MD kind of way, uh, what, what makes it hard to diagnose something? So, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. So most of medicine is, is pattern recognition, because the way people, the things people say about when they're feeling unwell, you know, I've got a cough or I've got a headache or I've got a temperature, obviously are not specific diagnoses. So what you get, what you learn really is is to put the pattern of what people say together with the pattern of what their investigations, so their blood tests or their x-rays or whatever show, and then to, to recognize patterns in those two things and, and to come up with a diagnosis based on that and and what makes that hard is when it doesn't really seem to fit into a pattern or it does seem to fit into a pattern but how unwell the patient is or how well they are or a certain other aspect it makes you think hang on that's not normally how these people look or something so it's those kind of things that give you a bit of a head scratching moment there's an awful lot of crap in the news and on the internet <laughs> about medical issues. Does this kind of creep into the way patients interact with you or do you see the effects of that when, when you're working essentially? It's quite interesting actually because given how much there is, you know, the click of a Google search or how much stuff there is in Daily Mail, for example, about health, the amount of people who come to you and say, I've read this in the Daily Mail, I've got this. Or if you say, I think you've got this, and people never say, no, I haven't, I've got this because I read it in the Daily Mail. So the number of times that I'm confronted with people who believe that what they've read trumps you know, what the professionals in the hospital are saying to them is actually still very, very small. But what definitely is becoming more and more evident, I think, which is clearly a UK specific thing is the number of people who see the reports about how under pressure the health service is and if you say to them okay I think your very elderly mum or whatever is now ready to go home a lot of people will now say well are they really or are you just saying that because she's blocking a bed and you know as far as we're concerned as healthcare professionals whether you're a doctor or a nurse or or whatever, nobody who's in hospital is blocking a bed in our eyes. That is just a concept that's created by politicians and the media to kind of frame some kind of narrative about how busy hospitals are. And so that's definitely something that has changed since I've been in practice. But the kind of thing that I think we'd all expect to have changed, which is people coming with information and saying, you know, I think this information is relevant to me, is not something people are doing in my experience as yet, but I'm sure it will come. Uh, I was wondering, because uh, I'm slightly obsessed uh, with my partner's Apple Watch and really want to get one for my cycling commute, all the fitness data and health data that's going into that those kind of wearables, do you think this might help in the future with diagnosing people? I think it's a certain possibility. I think it's, well, it's a definite possibility. I mean, I think the thing about, wearables is none of these things have been clinically verified and 
you know, so if I came up with a an Apple Watch equivalent that I only wanted to put on my patients in whilst they were in a hospital bed on my ward in the hospital, it would have to go through a huge number of tests to make sure that the information I could read off the watch was actually the information it said it was and and how, you know, variable that was and how reliable that was and that kind of thing. Even if it was exactly the same as what was on the Apple Watch anyway. You know, I'm sure, you know, more data can only be a good thing in in helping people achieve their best health, but the kind of state at which we'll be able to use all that reliably and meaningfully, I think, is still some way away. Oh, tempers my enthusiasm slightly. I mean, on a basic level, if if Apple Watches and things are ensuring people spend more time with a greater than resting heart rate, more time on their feet, less time sitting down, these things can only be good. So if they're raising awareness of, of health issues, then we're all in favour. So I I was listening to, I think, the BBC Food podcast, where they're talking about kind of the rise of things like clean eating, which is just one of, like, you know, a number of fads that have happened mm. over the year. Do these sort of things worry you when it comes to kind of people's health? Most healthcare professionals worry about fads, especially dietary ones, because the, I mean, it's like that great sort of meme that you sometimes see see about the, the effort required to refute bullshit is about a thousand times greater than the effort required to, to you know, spread it in the first place. And and dietary fads and things are subject to such little scrutiny. And, you know, if you frame them in terms of health and then people are always interested. But but things like clean eating are just money-making schemes. You know, if you think about how we all used to live, people used to spend most of their days on their feet. They used to spend most of their, they used to walk everywhere. They used to eat very little. They used to spend much less time sitting down, that kind of stuff. Those kind of things, just basic um, exercise and basic healthy eating around less red meat, you know, more fiber, um, more fresh fruit and vegetables. Those kind of, if we could just achieve the kind of traction of those basic issues, then most of us in healthcare would be so much, um, would, would be so happy with that. And if you think about things like sugar taxes and these things that achieve traction in the media, you know, these are just all driven by vested interest of large companies. And and if we could get to a point where there was somebody with a vested interest in driving basic free things to improve public health, then it would be a revolution, really. That was kind of one of my last questions. <laughs> well, I guess, what's the most kind of common illnesses or conditions that are the easiest to avoid? The world, both um, in high-income countries and in low-middle-income countries, is in the grip and of, of an evolving epidemic of obesity and diabetes, as, as I'm sure you know. And that is driven by the fact that the food industry essentially has no moral compass. If you are in a tiny village in the middle of East Africa, you'll still see, you know, Coca-Cola adverts and high, high saturated fat, high sugar foods. And until governments start to legislate against that in a way that we finally got to with cigarettes, then this epidemic of obesity and diabetes will continue to grow. And the, whereas, you know, cigarette smoking is about lung disease, heart disease and cancer, 
obesity and diabetes have such widespread implications on on health. This is the biggest problem facing the world at the moment, basically. Since you've read the book, I can ask, what would be the most interesting monster to treat, in your opinion? Well, uh, I mean, I'm, I've always been a bit of a vampire man, although I've not seen those. I've not seen those Twilight movies. I'm, go, I'm talking like the original Dracula novel and stuff. But so I think that would be very interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah, I enjoyed those. I enjoyed those bits. But so for me, it would definitely be a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks to Vivian Shaw and Tom Oates for their time. You can find their details in the show notes. I'm not sure who's going to be on the show next month. But on my reading list, I've got Provenance by Anne Leckie and Immortal Architects by Paige Orwin. You can listen to the interview with Paige about their interminables in episode one. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. Thanks for listening.